The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Well, welcome, welcome. This is another another great week on Museum Life. I'm glad that you've joined us today. Uh, and this is going to be a great show for me as well because I'm welcoming back one of my uh, dearest colleagues uh, and we could just chat for hours but I promise we will hold it to an hour today Uh, the producers are are wiping their brow that that will be a good idea anyway um, I have with me today uh, Susie Wilkening Uh, Susie was one of my very first guests on on this show when I began in the fall of 2013 so uh, uh, after you've heard the show today, make sure you go back and listen to our discussion about uh, cultivating curiosity. Today's uh, program is called Questioning Assumptions, and I think that that's a perfect way of expressing Susie's approach to uh, her research in the museum field. Uh, never take anything for granted, uh, always question our assumptions, and by doing that, Susie challenge, has always challenged me, and I know after you hear her, will challenge you to dig deeper and think uh, clearer about our uh, field. So this week, Susie and I are going to just be talking about what she's been questioning lately, uh, including some assumptions about uh, what the general public really thinks about uh, museums, and also, uh, and this is very exciting, uh, a project uh, that she and her partner have have started called Museum R&D through Reach Advisors, which is a really interesting new initiative to help museums understand the impact they're making and are frankly capable of making in the lives of our their visitors and community. So with that, Susie, welcome to the show today. Oh, thanks, Carol. Um, why don't we uh, start by talking a little bit about how this um, museum R&D project came about? Sure. Um, well, James Chung and I um, have always been chomping at the bit to really dig deep into the big issues that museums face and looking at how you know one individual museum has can often have really interesting you know visits that take place and can do a lot for a community but 
often in the life of an individual, one individual museum is one piece of a larger number of museum visits that they visit throughout their life, um, around the country, around the world, or just in their region. And because one museum is part of a bigger piece of all of those museum visits, we really wanted to step back and go, okay, what is the role of museums in the lives of individuals or in the lives of families over a lifetime? And that's bigger research than one museum can field. Um, it's something that, um, you know, when we're doing individual museum projects, we often get to these issues and start talking about and thinking about these issues and start trying to kind of get some answers but it's usually beyond the scope or significantly beyond the scope of an individual museum project. So we were trying to think about how can we come up with a way to feel this research that's so important to all museums because we're all part of the lives of these, of it, are these individuals and millions of individuals that come and visit us and also help museum, those individual museums think about the part that they're playing and how to do it better. And so we came up with this model of a research collaborative where museums can come together to pool resources to fund that big research while also being able to gather some um, research on their own visitors as well and start really thinking about how to apply the big research in their own museum. That's, that is, it is an intriguing model for me, uh, and I think that that you've touched upon so many of the challenges uh, that all evaluators and researchers face in the museum field, uh, not the least of which is oftentimes a museum can only afford to do an evaluation or research uh, project if they have received often outside funding to do a very specific activity, you know, to do a uh, summative evaluation of an exhibit or look at uh, how visitors are feeling about their institution, you know, perhaps a little market research. Mm -hmm. And you're right that after that, it's it's very difficult, even uh, through with science museums, with the with the case initiative, to look at a whole series of, say, summative evaluation reports and try to tease out any kind of of bigger lessons. Right. So it because sounds if you, yeah. If you think about it, you know, somebody who goes to museums regularly. Let's say they go to museums five or six times a year. Um, and you add up all of the different exhibits that they visit in the course of a year and then the course of five years and 20 years, you're getting into hundreds, maybe even thousands of exhibits. One exhibit is unlikely to have made a significant difference, though that does happen sometimes. But yet each exhibit is an incremental addition to this whole composite of wonderful things that happen to this individual because they visited all of those exhibits or all of those programs or you know, all, whatever the case may be at the museum. And that's a pretty big impact when we start adding it up cumulatively. So what we're trying to step back and look at is what's that cumulative value? How does visiting museums regularly as a seven-year-old or through the lifetime of childhood 
that you know that's going to have a much bigger impact than probably one exhibit or one visit. How do we step back and look at that impact and understand how those pieces all fit together? And then what is that impact in the end? And how do we measure that? And how do we convey that value to the broader public? And and that and it, it occurs to me that as you uh, as you and James continue to uh, to proceed along this this uh, this research uh, approach, that you're also going to do one of the most important things that that is create a. Uh, a series of values and identify what those values mm-hmm. are that that help us go beyond the quantitative and yeah. you know you and many many of us talk a lot about how we can identify that those those values uh, and there are lists and we talk you know we we develop those things but none of us uh, I don't think have been able to you know, to to actually prove it or even start uh, right. Analyzing it in any kind of rigorous research way, because to do so it would take so many resources of time and money. It, it just it becomes very very difficult. Um, and you know what we're looking at is you know the questions that we're asking end up now are very different than what evaluators would be asking because, and we're getting very different responses than what we get um, than what evaluators evaluators would get from, let's say, an exhibit value evaluation because we're, we're shifting from asking about specific museum experiences to asking individuals to think about the role of museums in their lifetime. And when we do that, we're starting to get very different outcomes and vocabulary about the role that they're perceiving museums have played in their life. And it's very different than what they say about, you know, one museum visit or, or one exhibit visit. Um, it's much broader and it's much harder to measure. Well, and I would think much more difficult to articulate. Yes, and they, ha- and they do struggle to articulate it. Um, what we're finding is it takes a lot of, I don't want to use the word coaching because we're not putting words in their mouth. It's not that kind of coaching. But it's a lot of, um, it takes time and, and a series of questions after question after question to kind of get to um, what it is that somebody thinks about the role of museum in their museums. Because they've never had, re- had any reason to think about it. Um, you know, if you think about a, a typical museum goer who does not work, has never worked in the museum field, maybe they were a, a teacher or maybe they were a lawyer, you know, wherever they were um, or are, and they've never been asked, what's the value of museums in your life? <laughs> and, and, and if they were asked that question, they'd probably be like, huh? It's a hard question to ask and it's a hard question to answer. So what we have found is that we have to set up a series of questions to kind of get people into that mindset of thinking about museums have done certain things in my life that other things have not provided. What is it that is unique and wonderful and fabulous about museums that I choose to go there and or I choose to take my children or grandchildren there versus everything else that's out there that we could be doing? What does 
a museum provides that nothing else provides, and then how do I articulate that? And that takes a series of questions that are very open-ended to help kind of get them there without prompting them with an answer, which is tricky. And uh, just so that I understand, so it sounds as if, you know, you and James are beginning uh, to do some preliminary research. Mm-hmm. Are you asking uh, people who are in, are, where do you ask them this question, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Are they, are they in the museum? Is it, a, you know, what we would call an intercept? or no, do no. Okay. Um, we are generally asking these questions um, outside of museums. Um, sometimes we're tackling it via an online survey. Sometimes we're tackling it via our qualitative work. Um, which includes panel work or interviews where I might be on the phone with somebody asking questions um, or it might be a more um, structured environment such as an online panel um, where we're asking questions among a group of people um, and we're asking them all the same question. Um, we're, we're deploying a variety of quantitative and qualitative methodologies and coming at it from very different angles over and over trying to figure out how do we get at this in a way that is um, where they're providing us with their thoughts, their vocabulary, their articulation. We're not prompting them, and we're making it as easy for them to do it as possible because it's hard to do, but um, we're really getting their thoughts. And by doing it from a lot of different angles and from a lot of different methodologies, we feel like we're starting to triangulate and kind of get at what sets museums apart from other things. You know, I, think, I would say we're just starting to triangulate there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, um, uh, several, several things uh, come to mind, and, and we're going to, uh, I'll try to break them into small chunks. One is, you know, I've always thought that it was uh, the uh, Institute of Museum and, uh, Museums and Library Services have done you know, a tremendous job uh, in the last few years of looking at libraries and museums, both as their similarities and of their differences. But, of course, one of the challenging differences for a uh, I'll try doing that comparison is libraries are transactional. Yes. And, you know, museums, while they try to be transactional, you know, if you get a membership, then you get this or you get that. Uh, ultimately, that's, they aren't. I mean, you can't borrow the objects. Right. Not usually. Right, yes. Well, you know, John Cotton Dana wanted you to borrow the objects and he created a lending collection, but that's that's going to be a different program. Right. <laughs> and we don't really want, I don't think, museums to be transactional, though there are transactional components of the museum visit, the actual logistics of the museum visit. Um and when I pop into my local library um, and I'm checking out a book or grabbing some, you know, some books or, or doing what I need to do, yes, it's very transactional. But if you were to set me down and ask me to start really thinking about the value of that library in my life and the fact that it's there and what that library represents, then that, suddenly that my language will change a lot. And I'll start articulating very different things about the role of the library in my life, in my family's life, 
or the role of the library in my community's life versus that transactional, I'm running in there to pick up that book that I wanted to read or to pick up the, you know, 47 books that my son wants to read. Um, And I think that's kind of a, a good analogy to, you know, evaluation work in terms of looking at one experience that's, you know, you're going in and out of that exhibit and finding out what somebody thinks about that and then versus stepping back and going, okay, what's the really the big picture here and how do we articulate that? And I think that's where we're getting some very different responses about um, complementary responses, but different responses about why museums. Interesting, very interesting. I think we're going to go to break a little early uh, because I don't uh, I don't want to break up the flow too much uh, today. And and when we come back, uh, Susie's going to share with us some of the things that they are finding out, and as she said, sort of some complementary things. So stay tuned. There's so much more to discuss and ponder. And we uh, and Susie will also let us know how we can become more involved in this uh, collaborative research program. So I, I do want to remind you that Susie is available at Susie at ReachAdvisors.com, uh, where you can also read her, her blog on uh, Museum Audience Insights. You can also follow Reach Advisors on Facebook. And she's been asking some very interesting questions uh, using the Facebook community. So I encourage you to participate that way as well. So we will be back in one moment uh, with more uh, with Susie Wilkening and questioning assumptions. So you're listening to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. 
Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And this week we are talking, I'm talking with Susie Wilkening of Reach Advisors. And we've been talking about a new initiative that Reach Advisors has has begun called Museum R&D that is uh, encouraging museums to work as a collaborative to uh, gather research about some bigger questions uh, that face our field. Uh, most importantly, trying to articulate why museums are, what the value of museums is uh, uh, over lifetime or over lifetime in, it, in an individual's life and, and presumably in, in uh, society and a community as well. So Susie, when we were, uh, you know, we just, we took a quick break um, and we were about to launch into, you know, you, you've just begun this research. So what are some of the preliminary findings? Okay, so to date, what we've done is we've fielded a survey of museum goers um, that went out among our, our inaugural member museums and, and their core visitors. Um, we have launched a museum panel of qualitative research um, panel, which has a little over 100 active panelists um, responding to questions that I put, put to them. Um, and those are all museum goers. Um, but we're also starting to um, do broader general population samples um, that of non-museum goers, um, and which is becoming very interesting. And, and I'm fielding new waves of that almost almost every day, but definitely every week right now. Um, so from the museum goers, we've been getting some feedback that I would call both um, promising and disheartening at the same time. Um, one of the um, early things that we released to our members and we had some feedback on um, was about museum membership. And we asked um, those who said that, yes, they were a member of their museum, their local museum, that they, um, or a member of a museum. We asked why, and it was an open-ended response. Only 14% gave a reason that indicated or articulated any broader societal value of the impact of that museum. Um, or, you know, and that would be saying things like, it's good for the community to have this museum. Or something like, I, I support this museum because I want it to reach, you know, children who would not otherwise be able to come. You know, whatever it was, mm-hmm. any, any kind of broader societal impact, anything beyond that one individual and his or her family. Um, only 14%. And 
from I felt that that was rather disheartening <laughs> uh, because you know we think I think we tend to think of membership as being the entry towards philanthropy towards a museum, and it's not. That's not the motivation for the vast majority of members. So we're starting to really think about, well, what, what should membership be? And is membership the right word? Does that really convey the relationship an individual has with the museum? Um, we, we, can be, we can join Amazon Prime. Is that the same thing? Sure, sure. That's very. That is very interesting. I mean, I I would suspect that any um, uh, museum marketing uh, manager um, and consultant who's listening to the show would have said, "Well, I could have told you that." Uh, and they, you know, they they do. I mean, we we hear all uh, many times that certainly entry level membership has to be mm-hmm. about um, uh, you know getting something. Right. Whatever, whatever that thing is. I mean, even at the Dallas uh, Museum of Art, where Max Anderson has has sort of turned membership on its head, certainly at the lower levels of individual and family, and he's not asking any money. You right. can join for free. You still get something out of it. If you participate in the activities, then you get some free parking, or you get you know, something else. It would be interesting to ask those visitors who are participating in almost like a, a Facebook community what if if there's any difference in what they feel that they're getting out of their membership, mm-hmm. you know, in a more altruistic way. Right. And, you know, looking at membership as Perhaps not really that stepping stone to philanthropy, but instead thinking of it as more transactional, but how can we take that transaction and pack in more meaning and fulfillment of the mission within that transaction? Yes. I, you know, as you were talking, it was reminding me that, you know, of course, libraries are free. So they don't, you know, they don't have a membership program per se, but you, you get a library card. And, and I have always been a person, I've moved around the country a lot, and uh, have a pretty high nerd quotient. So mm-hmm. the very first thing I did uh, when I would go to a new community is to, you know, pop on down to my local library and get a library card. And my husband would always sort of laugh. He'd say, okay, well, we're established now because you have your library card. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, to be honest, I might not use it for months at a, at a time, um, you know, because I was buying a book or Amazon was right there. And it's only been, you know, with, with sort of the advent of more electronic uh, books that I've used it more often. But boy, I've always valued that library card. And I think it because it makes me feel that I am a part of a community. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel that I'm, you know, I'm sort of voting you know, when the when the when the county ballots come up for uh, where we're going to spend our money, I like to say, well, because I'm a member of the library, they know that libraries are important, and so they will put a little bit more of our community dollars into uh, fixing them up, uh, renovating them, that kind of thing. So, what's interesting to me about what you're saying here, and and I'm I'm one of those individuals who goes down to the library, you know, as soon as we moved to Quincy. Within days, I had my library card. Um, so I'm right there with you. But you, when you're talking about the value of that library card and what it represents to you, you are putting a lot of emotive words around it. 
And my thought is, well, how many people put the same kind or quality of emotive words around their museum membership card? Yes. And so what we're finding is not that many. Um, It means those kinds of, of, of... qualities, those emotive qualities, similar to what you just described at the library, to about 14% um, of the members. But nothing like that's coming out of the other 86%. Well, and if we're now, this is true confessions, and perhaps there's a, there's a parallel here as, as well. Uh, I also have uh, memberships to many performing arts organizations. One, because I'm here in Washington, of course, I have a, a membership to the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm not, I was just thinking, no, I can't give you those same emotive words of why I'm a member of the Kennedy Center. Uh, I guess I feel that the Kennedy Center would be there whether or not I become a member. I'm a member because I do get a little off on my parking. More importantly, I get advance notice of, of their performances, and so I, it, 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 you know, I can make sure that I get uh, a ticket to what I want to see. So there's, you know, there's value there. But mm-hmm. no, I would show you my library card proudly much more. And my library card is all dinged up and battered. My, uh, my Kennedy Center card is pretty pristine. Mm-hmm. That, and that makes sense to me. So for the Kennedy Center, you're, the, you're part of the 86%. Whereas I for am. the library, you're part of the 14 Right, right. So the question then is, you know, for the, if I was running the Kennedy Center, my question would be, well, how do I make you part of, you know, transfer you from that 86 to the 14? Do I need to give you the language or do I need to show you other evidence of our value to the community so you start incorporating those so you have the same thoughts about us and our value as you might with for the library? How do I make that transition? Yes, and I, uh, yes, they need to ask me that question. Uh, I don't know that I'd be able to articulate it. I probably would be in your panel where you would have to start mm-hmm. asking me a series of questions. Um, and maybe uh, the Kennedy Center wouldn't be able, maybe you wouldn't be able to articulate it specifically about the Kennedy Center, but if you were ask, being asked about the performing arts and their value more broadly, you might suddenly be much more articulate. That could be, but it but it leads me to another true confession, and perhaps you you've heard this with some of your your uh, uh, panelists as, as well. Is that you know? Okay, so the Kennedy Center, I go, I I I like uh, musicals, I like jazz, uh, uh, some of the uh, the uh, um, the dance. I'll, but when they have the opera. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm sure I'll start getting letters and emails, and I would like to like opera. I really would. And, and perhaps that's, you know, a class or something I can take uh, later, and I will gain an appreciation. I'm thrilled that uh, supporting the Kennedy Center and having that and other institutions allow the opera to exist. I like that, that National Public Radio uh, uh broadcast opera i 
I like it in general and in theory, but it's not where I'm going to be spending my time. And right. I'm wondering if library or, or you know, sometimes our our museums fall into that category. I'm glad it's there. It's good for someone. Someone's enjoying it, but I don't have to do it. Okay, so that's where we're starting to get in, into a transition to um, the broader perspective of museums in American society. Um, because... You know, within this, that, the one survey of museum goers, we're hearing from, in this case, not the 14%, because the most of them didn't. It was within that sample, we only got 14%. Um, but, you know, they're the ones who are going. Um, and then the panelists are going to museums. So what about the broader public? And so what we're starting to do is running, we're starting to run a lot of test samples in the broader public to get, get a sense of, first of all, well, what percentage of Americans are actually regular museum goers? And then get a sense of, okay, among those who are not museum goers, are they really antagonistic towards museums? Or... Do they, are they just not on the radar screen? Or is there a, a feeling of, you know, I'm glad they're there, that they are there, but I'm not going to seek them out. Um, which may be how you feel about opera and it's how I feel about ballet. <laughs> I'm glad ballet exists. I am not going to go to a performance unless one of my children falls in love with ballet and then I'd go. Uh, but it's not what I would choose for myself. Now, I'm going to get the letters about ballet. Um, and so in our test samples, what we're starting to see is that, and this is rough because these are test samples, perhaps maybe close to 10% of um, Americans may be going to museums on a fairly regular basis. Um, perhaps about a third just really are never, ever going. And everybody else is kind of in the very occasional, maybe up to casual visitor category. Um, but when we, and our test samples are starting to ask about museums, and looking at these samples are, are predominantly people who are not museum goers, not regular museum goers, um, you know, we talk in the field about how there's a negative perception about the word museum, almost like museum's a bad word. Or, um, like, it's just, we just make that presumption that there are people, there's a huge number of people who, for whom museums are something that you, you make fun of or something that you scoff at, or it's just, they're so horrible and boring and dull that museum is a bad word. It's not, that perception is not holding up in our test samples. Really? Really. Oh, well, let's get, well, I know we don't rush to publish, but, or you don't rush to publish, <laughs> uh, but, but boy, that is fascinating because I don't know how many uh, 
uh, board uh, discussions I have had, uh, particularly with uh, with new uh, institutions or reno- uh, that are saying, "Well, you know, we we have this collection, and we're we're going to do uh, a- exhibits, and the exhibits are going to be really exciting, and we're going to engage people, and they'll get to do hands-on activities, and and have all of these things surround them, and they'll be immersed in the, these experiences." But we we don't want to be a museum. And it's almost as if internally, what you're saying is internally we've decided uh, that you know, maybe we have an inferiority complex that just the word alone is right. is is the the um, uh, the the center of of all of our our frustrations and 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 our problems. And what you're saying is not necessarily so. I'm starting to think that we are epic self-flagellators. <laughs> Um, and, and it does go back, you know, the idea of that, that insecurity, uh, I think, is a good word for it. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with calling ourselves what we are, because when we don't call ourselves what we actually are, it only lends to confusion. Yes. Yes. And I, what, you know, I'm starting to see in the data from these test samples is there's nothing wrong with being a museum. It's what we are. It's a it's a good thing, and that doesn't. And just because we call ourselves something different doesn't mean that we're not a museum. It doesn't mean that we're not perceived as a museum. And calling ourselves something different is probably not really going to change the opinion of the vast majority of people. Right. It's not it's going to get it that thirty percent. Right. Mm-hmm. So why not take the word museum, embrace it? And make it a fabulous thing. Yeah, why not? Why not? It's and a lot simpler that way to be what we are, to project the image of what we are, and project it as something that's wonderful. Because that's actually a better match to what we're seeing in our test samples than the idea that we are dusty, old, dead places that everybody hates and makes fun of. Interesting. So very interesting. So you know, what we're hoping to do is go back into the field uh, among the broader public with much larger samples to see if these test samples hold. That would, that would be great. I, you know, well, we're, before I launch into uh, another question for you, Susie, we're going to go ahead, we're going to take our second break, uh, but uh, please be... Uh, Stay tuned because we've got a lot more to talk about. But Susie, before we go on 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 this break, would you just let people know uh, if listeners are saying, "Wow, I'd love to get my museum involved in this project," how would they do that? Uh, well, they can absolutely email me at Susie S U S I E at ReachAdvisors dot com, uh, and they can also learn more. We have a, a, still a beta website up, um, but they can go to www.ReachAdvisors.com dot com slash museums. R-D, so it's M-U-S-E-U-M-S-R-D. Great. Fabulous. Okay, we will, as promised, take a, a, our second break of the show, and when we come back, more with Susie uh, and this very interesting uh, line of research that she and James are working on. So uh, stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Stay tuned. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop. Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and on demand on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert, and we're in our final segment today, uh, having a great discussion with Susie Wilkening, uh, particularly the research uh, that that she and uh, James of Reach Advisors are just beginning and looking at uh, the perceptions of of both museum goers and um, recently non museum goers uh, about you know what they think about museums, um, but. Susie, we were talking at the break. Part of this is, um, it reminds me of when we were going back to the ballet and the opera. You and I value it. You know, we would, we would, uh, uh, be very vocal if, you know, the, they were going to, um, do away with these, these, uh, these items, these part of, of the performing arts. But, but there's an action gap. Is it, it, there's a gap for us. Yes. 
and and it seems to me that that um, you know there uh, was reminding me of some work that uh, uh, Cecilia Garibay and I have been talking about. She's been working with um, uh, new immigrants, uh, Vietnamese uh, immigrants in uh, Northern California, and just there's there's no. Uh, perception of what a museum is and once they you know there's some outreach to this community they begin to understand uh you know how how they might play a role or the the museum might play a role in in their community then there's there's you know then there's more activity so it seems that there you know but that's not the kind of gap that you're talking about it isn't isn't um i mean i think James called it an activity gap when I was um, uh, describing what I was starting to see in the data. And I think it's a, 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 a very appropriate term. I have an activity gap with the ballet. Now, I have been to the ballet. I have been to the ballet several times in my lifetime. And okay, now at this point, it's probably been 20 years, so I probably should have given it another shot. But I'm... Choose, you know, it's not what I choose, but it's based on my own prior experiences. And it's not that I've had bad experience at the ballet. It's just not my thing. Um, and I think part of the activity gap for some people is they've been to museums and maybe during their childhood, maybe it's been a while, but it just hasn't been their thing. So they may still be God's there, but it's not their thing. So that's part, one part of the activity gap. Another part would be people who don't think it's their thing, but they haven't actually been or been enough to really formulate opinion. They think that the, a museum is one thing and it may actually be a different thing, um, and they don't know that because they haven't been. And so that, that is, I think, more of what you're talking about with your work with, with Cecilia. You know, it's a communication of understanding what is it that you're actually suggesting to these individuals that they may want to come for. Um, and so that's a different... It's, a, it's still an... an an action gap, but it's a different kind of action gap because um, it's overcoming a, a presumption of that system that's not going to be their thing, but they haven't tried it. I haven't tried bungee jumping. I don't think it's going to be my thing, but, you know, I haven't tried it. I'm sticking with the libraries. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, I, you know, and, and, but I think that this conversation is just, you know, reminding me and uh, uh, again to say something that, that I, I often uh, iterate on this, this show and, and actually in other parts of my professional life is that we need to be, we need to question and clarify our vocabulary. Yes. Because it's so very easy uh, to, to fall into an assumption that, well, you know, uh, to use your your percentage, you know, thirty percent of of a of a given population uh, will never go to a museum. They just, you know, it's not their thing. They're not interested in it. You can give them free memberships and free popcorn and anything else. You know, drive them there, uh, but but it's just not their thing. And it's easy to then sort of turn that uh, around and 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 jump. Uh, to the next uh, the next conclusion uh, right. and and that's really not what we're saying I right. mean, they, they might saying value that, it that, that, that you can give them the free membership and you can um, you know drive them to the museum give them popcorn all those things and they may still not set foot in the door but that doesn't mean they think that you're a horrible place <laughs> right 
Right. And I was thinking, too, uh, recently I was uh, reviewing some marketing uh, research that a client had had done uh, as they were trying to sort of figure out what their community thought of them. And, of course, there were a number of responses uh, about, well, you know, what do you think about this kind of this museum? And it was a natural history museum. So they they got a, a number of responses said, oh, well, that's the place where the dead animals are. Well, yes, it's true. It is true, and it wasn't a judgment. No. But, but but it was easily perceived by the people sitting, you know, the museum people sitting around the table who who think of themselves as you know we're much more than that. We are researchers, and we're looking at global warming, and we're doing all these other educational and wonderful and valuable things and so to take that answer and put their own judgment on it saying well we better not be you know maybe we should get rid of all the taxidermy so we're not about dead animals and it just it's easy to be led down these paths right and you know my initial response i was like no dioramas are awesome Uh, because our research finds people find dioramas to be really compelling Made up of dead animals, Norris called me the world's staunchest defender of dioramas, but it's true. Um, But I think we also latch onto that word dead Mm -hmm. or old. And that if we're described as dead or old in terms of like dead animals or old things, that that's bad. But it's not. It might be, it's a perfectly valid description. Yes. A natural history museum is full of dead animals. Yeah, that's technically true. That's not a bad or a good thing. It's a, just a description. Right. A museum, a history museum or art museum might be full of old things. It doesn't mean that it's a judgment that it, those are bad things. So, you know, one of the ways that we've been starting to test perceptions of museums is to ask people, well, you know, if I say the word museum, what words come to mind? And when I'm... I collect words like old or dead. I actually code them in the neutral category. I code positive, neutral, and negative words. I code them into the neutral category because unless they say something like that's, that's clearly a negative, I'm not going to call it a negative. If they said horrible dead things, then I'm going to call it negative. But if they just say dead things, that, that's just a description. It's nothing else. It's not a yes. judgment. Very, that's very, very interesting. Uh, in the time that we have left, I, I wanted to go back to, you know, where we started in this discussion and you were talking about, you know, that you, you know, one of the goals of, of this research is to look at the impact of museums over an individual's mm-hmm. lifetime. And it reminded me of, you know, we get better at things and the better we get at them uh, the more we enjoy them Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's true if you're, you know, um, uh, mine is horseback riding. When I first started to ride, I was terrified. And now after years, uh, I'm still terrified, but I, I much, I'm, enjoy it much more because I'm not having to worry about lots of extraneous things. They are natural. And I'm wondering if the same is true uh, for museums in that, you know, if, you, if you're tracking these, um, you know, very high museum goers over time, that what they're also doing is learning 
more about museums, how to find them, how to navigate them, what's mm-hmm. in them, um, you know, how to decide whether you've got, you know, you want to do the the private tour or the non-tour. And, I, you know, I'm wondering if that might be a, a fruitful area of both, well, research for you and implementation for me uh, to see if there are ways that we could... Uh, help jumpstart that learning mm-hmm. curve a little fast, you know, uh, so that that people are, you know, professional museum goers earlier in their career and therefore have more time that they can really enjoy museums in their life. Does that make sense? Yeah, I and mean, what, look- what we're looking at is um, most people come to museums during their childhood because they have somebody in their life who took them to museums. And so they, it's just, they know how to do it because they've been doing it since a young age. You know, my children start around the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, like they own the place, and they're one in three because they're very comfortable there. They go there a lot. <laughs> um, they're never going to be uncomfortable in a museum setting in terms of understanding how to navigate the space and use it because it's part of their life. But that's not true of everybody. And so in our samples, in our, in our panel, we do have some individuals who really never came to museums until adulthood, and they had to basically learn museums as adults. Um, what we found is that most of them had somebody helping them. Um, it could have been a boyfriend or girlfriend um, who you know, grew up going to museums, or it could have been a teacher in college, perhaps. I mean, but there was somebody, it wasn't something that they went in the door by themselves they had somebody basically holding their hand and, and bringing them in. So it's almost like they need a buddy to come in and help them. Um, and that, that actually may be, it's how, can, how can we be more, you know, provide more buddies for individuals to bring them in that door and have a great experience? Um, because that's what we're seeing in terms of how people do start coming to museums later in their life and learn museums is through a mentor. And, you know, that reminds me, I had uh, Nick Gray on um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and he is the uh, founder of uh, Museum Hack, uh, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, is really opening museums to a wide variety of 20-somethings in the New York City area, in addition to tourists, and that to me was the, you know, really uh, his work is the implementation of what you're talking about. He's Uh, serving as as the museum buddy. He is. He is. He is. And uh, Nick, if you're listening, go ahead and use that in your marketing. But, but you know, this idea of skill building is something that in education we do in almost every field. Certainly mm-hmm. as a biologist, you know, if you were out in the field, I taught you the skills of how to look and listen and, and take notes and, and uh, create your grids. Uh, we sometimes, I think, shortchange that in our museum education programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's there as a goal, but we sort of circumvent that and, and uh, say, well, yes, but it's more important that you know about Degas or it's you know the primary reason that you're here is to you know have some cognitive or affective uh, experience you know we want you to to be happy we don't talk about it in terms of just learning museum skills and I think there's some some programs that come out of some education programs um, departments assume that 
visitors already have that skill. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I think there is, sometimes there is an assumption that those skills are there when they're perhaps not. Interesting. Well, this has given us, uh, given me a lot of food for thought as well as beginning to uh, connect some dots in, in this area. So I am, I'm thrilled, Susie. Uh, always when I talk to you, you give me lots of things to think about. And I'm really excited about this new uh, uh, program that you and James are uh, are starting, and I'm sure you'd love more museums to get involved so that you have more data points. So, again, how would they get involved? Sure. So they can reach me at Susie at ReachAdvisors.com, and it's S-U-S-I-E. Um, or they can go to our website, which is ReachAdvisors.com slash MuseumsRD, M-U-S-E-U-M-S-R-D. And there they can learn about, it's really, it's a two-pronged program, how to participate in this broader research, but also how to get some semi-custom work about their own visitors as well as part of it. Fabulous. Such an interesting model, and I can't wait to uh, you know, bring you back on the show in about a year when you've got a little you know, more data under your belt. I'm sure we'll have uh, even greater insights. As always, Susie, it is uh, great to have you on the show and great to hear about your work. Thanks for uh, being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Until then, I'm Carol Bossert. Remember, you can always uh, drop me an email at carol.bossert at verizon.net. I'm interested in hearing from all of my listeners uh, all around the world, and uh, as, as well as let me know what issues uh, or guests we should have on the show. Uh, the show is about you, and it's about museums. So uh, until next week, thanks for listening. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. We'll be right back.